0: Let's go.
1: You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, They want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars.
2: Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Sensibilities. I'm your host, Bill McBride, here with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Andrew Martz. Andrew, what was the most popular toy of your childhood? (laughs) Are
0: we going back to a question of the day?
2: We yeah, did that in early episodes. Of, in the day. I'm gonna segue
0: this one though, so let's hear it. The most pop the most popular toy. What was the was most little? popular?
2: Not your favorite. What was the most popular okay. toy, like when you were I don't know, fourth grade
0: around then? Um I would say probably like a gaming system. I I mean, I'd have to go into the memory archives. Maybe like a like a Sega Genesis or that might have even been like the early first like Sony PlayStation. Okay. Like Sony PlayStation one. Right. Was around that time, so I would—that's what I would assume—is probably the gaming systems. Okay, well, what about you? You know,
2: I, I was trying to think because Atari certainly was super popular, but I think that came out a little after the Rubik's Cube. That was like the one that oh. everybody had it. You had to have it, right? There was yeah. the Missing Link and the Pyramid that came a little bit after when Rubik's Cube got popular. But you know, we're talking about popularity versus favorite too so folks this is this is where we're going today it seems like a fun nostalgic question you know we all had our own favorite some of us had the slinky right the pet rock the cabbage patch kid or the atari or sega genesis depending on you know your era but if you didn't have one of these the rubik's cube for instance you might have felt left out so look this is a financial podcast we're going somewhere Let's say we asked the question of what was your favorite toy, Andrew. Is that a
0: different answer for you? Um, yeah, I think one that. Are you asking me what it was? Yeah what was your What was your favorite? Not the most popular. I don't, there was there, there was a lot of favorites. Yeah, right. Because that that changed with the wind when you were a kid. Sure, but I I do remember two in particular. One was a go kart that that I got when I was uh, I don't know probably twelve. Um, that was pretty, that was a pretty cool, like gas powered. Wow. Ripping up the backyard. Uh, And the other was probably around the same era, but it was the, um, the talk, the talk boy from, uh, home alone. Remember the home alone lost in New York when he had the the talk boy recorder?
2: No, I don't remember that. (laughs)
0: Do you watch? Do you watch Home Alone at Christmas? Anyway, no, he had it was basically just a little recording recording device. Yeah, but it you know it looked a very certain way, and it was like it had this little handle for your hand, and you can like record on it and then listen to it back and do it f- sped up or slowed down. And uh, yeah, that was. But it was in Home Alone. Macaulay Culkin had one, and it was like it was really cool. Awesome. And you know what? This
2: is this is unrehearsed, right? And I, I love how. <laughs> You kind of went off a little bit. This is bit. live. I know. This is yeah. <laughs> live. Podcasting at its finest. You went off a little bit on your favorite, right? The popular was like, you got to think about, you know, who else had it, how, how many people had it, and, you know? So so for a small few of us, the popular one was our favorite, but the vast majority of us, like Andrew, had a favorite that was specific to our own childhood happiness, right? Not every kid on your block had a go-kart or a, a talk boy. Uh, so now, now we're, we're getting super deep in human psychology and marketing without even knowing it right now. So the question, or better said, questions are, why was the popular one the favorite for some people? The psychology of marketing would state that some people derive the most pleasure from obtaining that which their peers have, even more so than the actual pleasure of the toy itself. So, yeah. Andrew, are we talking FOMO here again? <laughs> right? Kinda. Right. Yeah, a little bit, right? So, well, FOMO and even nostalgia investing, some of our old podcast uh, topics there, there are aspects of investing that we covered. They're tangential to both those concepts, and an idea I had when I was doing some research for the portfolios that I was uh, that I construct in my practice. So I was look simply I was looking up a specific ETF, and the answer came up that it was a very popular one. And right. you know my um, contradictory mindset, right? Like I'm like, oh man, if that was popular, is it good, <laughs> right? Or, or is it, is that good or bad, right? So I noticed that what do you prop- mean pop? What do you mean popular? Well, if you, if you can look up, right, you can Google, Hey, mm. what was the best selling ETF last year? Right. Okay. And Google doesn't differentiate Just
0: ETF you, in general or best yeah, stock ETF. That's
2: great. Great point slash question that we're going to get to, right? Like you're Googling. Okay. What's the best, what's the, what's the most popular ETF different yeah. answer than what's the best ETF. Right. And then a, a different answer than what was the best ETF for me, right? But I'm getting ahead of us, right? right. So um, I noticed that this ETF that came up that was the most popular one simply had the best one-year return, right? So okay, I discovered the most obvious thing to everyone out there when I say it. When people are investing on their own, they will put in the question of the search engine of what is the best mutual fund stock ETF investment or... What is the most popular? Now, if you listen to any one of our previous episodes, you know we preach about how unique all of our situations are and how your portfolio should reflect that. So the whole topic then brings to mind our parents asking us, if all the uh, the cool kids jumped off a bridge, would you do it? Guess what? That's what we're doing, right? We're searching. We're jumping. We're jumping. (laughs) We're, We're searching for the most popular investment, see what it is, and then because of the concept of groupthink, we assume that the one that everybody else is buying is the best. And this permeates a lot of our thinking, whether it's politics, sports, or finance. We surround ourselves oftentimes, even in social circles, with people of a certain mindset. Or if they have a conflicting mindset and there's more of them than there are of us, sometimes we, we tend to adopt that mindset, right? So uh, you know, there's probably a Dallas Cowboys fan in Philadelphia. Right.
0: Somewhere. Right. Uh, but, uh, well, I, th- I think I see the road you're going down here. And maybe you'll get to it, but I'm I'm almost (laughs) like concerned that like we're going down like too contrarian. Like the best, the most popular investment is never the best investment. I where I think maybe more of the point is like the most popular investment has no relevance or correlation to is it the right investment for me or not? Because sometimes most popular investments are really good investments and sometimes really popular investments are not really good like there's zero correlation between them i think a lot of people want to try to say like oh this is where you know one of the things i know advisors look at a lot is like where where are the flows where are the fund flows going to how much net new assets are going into equities versus bonds or how much did this mutual fund or etf family get versus another one and and you follow the flows and because is that where the smart money is going or do I do the, the, the the contrast of that? And this is just a, a different, uh, style of playing the same game, which is like all this speculating about things that are beyond our, our control.
2: Yeah. Well, look, there's good, better, best, right? It's positive comparative and superlative degree of Mm -hmm. that's, you know, we were talking about, you know, English and grammar earlier, right? That's, that's, that is what it is. But we tend to think that the superlative degree, which would be best, applies universally, especially in our investments. So we also, you know, we, we talk about the staggering number of investors who, who don't make a profit or achieve their goals because of day trading, panic selling, nostalgia mm-hmm. investing, all the other reasons, right? But, but this one, Andrew, to me, this was right under our nose, right? It makes sense... With the intimidating vast world of of available investments, that we go to the magic of the internet to see what everyone else is doing, right? And and you know, I, I, I just hope after you listen to today's episode that you think about why you're employing that as a strategy. If you know that 95% of people that walk over the bridge jump off. Don't go with them, right? So,
0: well, if- the other thing that's interesting about using the the internet as the proxy of your your filter for these investments is, like, the most popular investment. Like, if I was to Google, you know, what was what was the best, you know, what's the best investment or best ETF or best fund for twenty twenty three. I'm not going to get the most popular investment. I'm going to get the investment that's offered by the firm that pays the most money in SEO and Google searches to rank them the highest. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to get hit with like four or five different sponsored ads first. Mm -hmm. And then every website that I visit after that is also going to hit me with banner ads for said investment firm. Um, And it's all of the big shops that you, you know, you would probably recognize, right? Your your PIMCOs, your JP Morgans, your Franklin Templetons, your American Funds, right? Like these are your large asset managers who pay millions and millions of dollars for marketing and advertising on the internet because this is where people are looking for investment information.
2: Yeah, th- so those ads come up first and even, even worse, and we could really get into the weeds and do a whole separate episode on this one, define best, Right, Google's telling you which one's the best. First, you get the ads and you get the people who are paying to tell you that theirs was the best. But then even if you're just trying to determine what's the best um, investment last year, translation most popular maybe are they basing that on cash inflows? Are they basing that on net inflows, right? Because the mm-hmm. the fund with the most cash inflows could be the worst, right? Because everybody flocked to that because in 2021, that was the one with uh, that had the best returns, right? Is it number of shares hello, purchased? Hello, Kathy Woods ARC, yeah. ARC fund. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally, man. I know, right? So if the black magic of the internet is only telling us what everyone else is doing and everyone else is not doing well, how do we find what is right for us? It seems so difficult to find the right personalized investment when the search engine or uh, the SEOs are geared towards this concept of telling us what we need to be uh, is one of the cool kids. So here we go. Let's do a three step plan of being yourself in your portfolio. Okay. Number right. one, start with a plan. Okay. There's a few websites out there. There's Probably a million websites out there, but I, I found a yeah. couple um, uh, to develop a full financial plan. Now you might not get the same kind of uh, detailed organization and tax efficiency and all that of a uh, of a financial planner, but I used PlansWell.com just to see how it went, and it was you know super basic, right? I'm, I'm I'm going to get the emails now for the rest of my life from them, but in a matter of minutes, it showed me. Uh, what I needed to do in terms of saving more or less for retirement right so hey what's your income right. what's your expenses okay and you're this age and you want to retire then and hey this
0: is what you really should be saving every month for retirement you said you said step one start with a plan I, I think step one of starting with a plan is start with a goal like you have to define your goals first. And the whole purpose of planning, right? You go to that website, which I, I know that website well, but if you go to any of these websites, what are the first things that they ask you? They ask you some like basic, you know, biography information, give me your age, give me your, you know, your demographics, things like that. When do you want to retire? But then it's like, well, give us some goals. What are you looking to achieve? What do you do? You want to retire at sixty? Do you want to retire at seventy? What sort of lifestyle are you going to live? Is it going to cost you five thousand dollars a month to live or fifty thousand dollars a month to live? And now you can start to take some of these these ideas and concepts that you've had, and you and you, you can start to practically put them into pay onto paper. And this now becomes the roadmap that will will create and and make clear what investment should i use I tell people all the time like you know they always ask like what what investment should you know should we be using i don't know but your plan will tell you your plan will tell you the investments that you need to have because asking a question we've talked about this so many times like what's the best investment what stock should i be invested in right. does, does the bond market look good now it's like I don't know, like maybe <laughs> it could, but it all depends. Andrew, that's why I broke it down to three
2: steps here, right? Like, let's face it. Nobody wants to hear that you have to do anything more than to listen to somebody super smart tell you what to buy. It, right. It's I'm sorry, folks. It, it that it just doesn't work that way. Right. Like you can you can talk to your 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 favorite in-law that's the the rich person in the family, and they can tell you what they did that that has no bearing or very little, if any, bearing on your specific situation, right? Your plan is your plan for a reason. Otherwise, there would be one website that has everybody's financial plan and you just, you know, plug in how much money you have and boom. So number one, start with a plan with goals in mind. Number two, which this plan will help you do, allocate your portfolio classes, okay? Very important, folks. Your portfolio classes first. It's the whole point of this episode. There are like seven to 10 major asset classes out there, but because popular sells, we only hear about U.S. large cap stocks. That's all anybody ever wants to talk about is the Dow Jones and the S&P 500. These are U.S. large cap stock indices. There's a million other indices out there which reflect different asset classes. By the way, many have less risk and more return. Okay. So if you're allocating your portfolio classes, if you do one of these um, financial plans online, it'll usually break down how much you should have in each asset class. But let's just say you're doing it on paper, using the calculator. The old standards are US large cap stocks, 10 to $200 billion market capitalization companies, right? These are your Apple's, your Microsoft's, US mid cap companies, 2 to 10 billion dollars in market capitalization, US small cap is under 2 billion, international stocks, emerging market stocks, US bonds and international bonds, and I put on our outline here, Andrew, precious metals, real estate and cash. We'll we'll discuss yep. some of the assumptions, but you know, a lot of the models that you'll see online will include one or all three of these in very very small amounts. So for today though, so he- here's
0: really quickly here's here's something that i thought was really important while you're saying this you said the whole point is episode there, there are seven to ten major asset classes and I thought it was interesting you said seven to ten so how many like what it like people may be listening to so like what, what do you mean portfolio classes and asset classes okay you just you just said like words but when you Google, here we go. This is going to be fun, right? <laughs> How many asset classes are there? Yeah. The first, the first seven results I just got. There were four different responses and answers. Right. right. The first one said there are three major asset classes. Right. Stocks, bonds, cash. Right. Another one says there are five different asset classes. Right. Large cap stocks, mid cap stocks, small cap. Uh, U.S. bonds and cash, right? So depending on where you go, th- there is not even, if you go to Morningstar, Morningstar says there are 118 different asset class categories. So so that would be probably the extreme mm-hmm. down to like your most basic, right? Three, stock, bonds, cash. So how you break this out, I think, should be determined by your your interest level, your level of sophistication, um, and your level of understanding, right? So you you have to understand practically like what is the difference between a large cap stock and a small cap stock to be able to allocate that. And then, you know, eventually I think what we're going to talk about here is executing on it. Um, I, I would agree that you could probably do this well with somewhere between like that, you know seven to let's even say maybe 15 number, because as you kind of listed there, right, that that last, you know, asset bucket of precious metals, real estate, cash, there are probably a couple of different, you know, categories I would put those into. I, w- I don't know if I would lump that all into one, uh, you know, one category. But, um, you know, the the point here is that even this topic that we're talking about is much more nuanced than one, we can even really cover on a on this particular podcast. And you could probably spend four to five hours reading about this and still not have a real clear grasp of what, you know, what you're dealing with.
2: Absolutely. I, I think the spirit of this though is going back to spirit. Say again. Say, give me the spirit. The, I want the spirit of it. <laughs> this, the spirit of it is having the listener recognize that, When when they were talking about the Dow Jones and the SP five hundred or Googling what's the best, most popular investment, by and large, what you're talking about is only US large cap stocks and you're missing a lot of the equation. Now, if you just said two asset classes are stocks and bonds, right, then you're oh I want, you know, I'm if I'm Forty. I'm on eighty percent in stocks and twenty percent in bonds, or, or whatever the recommended number is at that point. Well, those eighty percent in stocks, the inclination for the person that doesn't take a take it, a, you know, an, an inch deeper, uh, is to say, oh, well, those eighty percent in stocks, they should be stocks that are in the S P five hundred. So that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is the most popular stuff is that big name stuff that. You know, you'll see the lights flashing on the news, right? The Apples, the Tesla, the Microsoft, all those large cap companies, they're the sexy stuff, right? They're the stuff that people want to turn on their TV and see what they're doing. It's also the same thing and the same rationale. It's also the same thing that people uh, have a sort of a, a tangible attachment to, meaning that if we got XYZ small cap company that's out of... Toledo and they've got a 1 billion dollar market capitalization and a 20% per year average return for the last 5 years but they make some kind of widget that we can't spell nor do we know what it does not as sexy mm-hmm. as Apple you got the iPhone in your hand right and you feel like oh if i'm a shareholder of this i'm supporting myself like you know you know in some small super small way uh, i guess you are but but the seven asset classes that, that I outlined here, U.S. Large, U.S. Mid, U.S. Small, International, Emerging Markets, U.S. Bonds, and International Bonds, those seven take, if you use those, take into consideration your age, risk tolerance, and the general asset allocation percentage of each class, okay? There's, there's too many advertisements on the internet, folks, so I'm just going to give it to you here with an example and show you how to tweak it to be more aggressive or conservative. So this will be a moderate example of what you could do with those seven asset classes. Number 1, US large cap, 40%. Okay? This is this is again, we're going to say a 40-year-old with a moderate investment profile, okay? US large cap 40%, US mid cap 15%, US small cap 10%. International stocks Emerging markets, 10%. U.S. bonds, 10%. International bonds, 5%.
0: Talk to me, Andrew. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's important to note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and not recommended investment advice. (laughs) Yeah, for for sure. Uh, I didn't know you were giving out live.
2: (laughs) Allocation. Well, well class here, here's allocation. what class allocation? would That's not, ass, not asset allocation. Class, a, a, a model of what a class allocation could be for a 40 year old with a moderate investment profile. Now we right. can we can easily tweak this, right? So we we but recognize. He, here's,
0: here's here's the point. Like that, you know. Yes, for my feedback. That's that seems like a very reasonable allocation uh, for a 40 year old with a moderate and, investment profile maybe because there are a lot of other considerations that we would on that we would discover in step number one right developing and and starting with a plan that would give us clues into what the right investments you know would be so i think to to kind of write classes make this make this what's that it,
2: that would give us clues to, as to what the right percentage of asset classes
0: for our allocation would be, not the actual right. What did investment, I
2: say? right? You said the plan right. would tell you what's the best investment,
0: right? Yeah. So yeah, you're just talking about the asset allocation at this point of, of and- the classes. Yeah, so. of the classes. We yes, classes were very important. We've got you. We understand. <laughs> I mean, yes and, and no. I mean, it, it it's an asset allocation model. That that is what you were talking about. Yes. This is go onto any investment website and they're gonna spit out some, you know, some version of, of what you just iterated. Yep. Now, what what I think is important is like these these types of things that you're talking about, right? These asset Classes <laughs> allocation. They're, they're, these are not static things because different financial professionals, right, present company included, may have opinions and views that, like, hey, there are times you should be a little, you know, less in er, emerging market, maybe a little bit more on on international, maybe a little bit heavier on large cap, a little bit, a little bit lighter on you know bonds and whatever it may be. So. You know, listening to you as you you rattled off these percentages and numbers. I don't know if this is, you know, is this some general asset allocation? Is this specific for Q1 of 2023? Now I think we're just kind of trying to give an example of you start first with just that asset, you know, breakdown. And the reason for me that this is important is because we can intuitively know. For all seven of these asset classes that you just listed, two very important things, what their expected average return is going to be and what their associated level of risk is going to be. And this matters because now we can we can align the investments back to step 1, which is the goals. So if you're, you know, if you're a certain age looking to retire in 20 years, we can start to predict how much average rate of return you should be able to accomplish. At the same time, set clear expectations for what the investor's emotional journey is going to be, meaning what are the rides up and down we're going to see, whether it's you know, a COVID-19 pandemic where you saw the market crash 30% in two weeks, or if it was this long, prolonged, you know high inflation sort of recessionary environment that we saw in, in 2022. Neither one of those are fun environments, but neither one of those are, are permanent environments, meaning that what we experience as investors in those timeframes isn't indicative of that specific investment or that specific asset class or that portfolio as a whole. These things move in cycles. So an asset allocation is, is so important because it helps investors set at proper expectations for not only like the, the current, like what's going to happen in the next six months, the next 12 months, but what should I expect over the next 20 years? Within that then, your allocation may or may not change based on things like lifestyle changes, your preference, your needs, your goals, like all of these things back in step one will dictate how it impacts your asset allocation model.
2: I, I, I agree with 87% of that. The lifestyle, the preferences change, your age changes. So two reasons why people change their portfolio. One is why they should, and one is why they shouldn't. The reason you should change your allocation of the classes in your portfolio is because you changed, right? So you touched on that lifestyle, age, maybe your risk is different. Maybe maybe you got more money or less money, change jobs. Your life changes, you change, okay, your portfolio allocation of classes changes. What I don't think you should change for is what you touched on, which is when the market changes. Now, a great example of that is a few years ago. I I know you and I talked about this extensively, the emerging markets. It's kind of the writing was on the wall, right? So emerging markets, folks, those are your smaller companies, uh, or I'm sorry, smaller countries uh, that have, uh, it's a very risky asset class. Let's just call it that. Um, And it's not very well understood by, because it's it's always so volatile. Um, Emerging markets years ago, I think it was like four or five years ago, maybe like all the fund managers were talking about how it got to get out, right? So if we look at a portfolio though, over a 10, 20 year period, they were right about a couple years, but then like every asset class that has a a bad few years, it comes back like gangbusters, right? So they were right. So the question is, you know, listener, do you want to sit there in emerging markets and try to time when it's time to take that out of your asset allocation or would you rather write it out? I would say you've got better odds at just writing it out. If it's 10% of your portfolio, there's a reason why it's only 10% and not 40, like US large cap. US large cap, conversely, is much more stable than emerging markets. So, all right, step three,
0: guys. I, By the way, I don't disagree with that. I agree with that 100%. Okay. I guess I was referring more to like, you would do like normal systematic rebalancing, right? So sometimes those percentages can get out of whack because parts of your portfolio over or underperform. Um, so you, you're you balancing that portfolio. There's other episodes on that. Give us step number three. I'm dying to hear it. And so are the listeners. Step
2: number three, I'm, I'm going to go to you to finish this one off. So okay. this this <laughs> one, look, you got the plan. You know what percentage of your money is going to be in what asset classes. Here's the fun stuff that everybody wants to start with, okay? We just spent an hour not telling you not to buy the most popular investment and not to jump off the bridge. So if we're saying you can't trust the cool kids and you know that everything Google's trying to sell you, you know, they're trying to sell you something, you got a dilemma. Andrew, how would you find the best mutual fund or stock to fill in your specific asset allocation.
0: Gosh, I wanted to see, we did an episode on this and it was one of our very first episodes. I wanna go back in the archives. Uh, hold on, let's see, let's I, see. I looked it through was... the whole archives too cause I was
2: trying to find which episode we did about FOMO. I thought it was in the title, I couldn't find it.
0: Yeah, it was episode number two. We <laughs> talked about this. Mutual funds versus ETFs, yeah. uh, a topic that you and I are both very, very passionate about. So let me say this. So your, your question is, how do you find the best investment to fill the asset class? Okay. Right.
2: I listened to Bill and Andrew, and I, now I know that I need 10% of my portfolio should be in US small cap stocks. Yeah, What are those Five stocks that I should. Yeah, this is just
0: one advisor's opinion who happens to be a CFP with a master's in financial planning. But none of that matters. Twenty years experience—that's fine. Here's and a published published author. author Whatever, (laughs) it's fine. Listen to whoever you want. (laughs) It's fine. But here's what I would say. Every one of these (laughs) these asset classes is going to track to an index. These are predefined indices, indexes that already exist. And they are all encompassing, meaning that there is an index that tracks U.S. large caps. There is an index that tracks U.S. mid caps, international bonds, emerging market stocks, uh, U.S. bonds. So... The first place that I start to find the the, the best investments is based on two factors. What are the investments that most accurately tracks that specific index? So I want to find an investment that is going to track that asset class. I've just told myself, right? My plan has has told me this is the asset class that I need to be invested into. Okay, great. We just talked about trying to time the markets, time investments, find this, that, and the other thing. No, find that asset class. So find investments that most accurately track that asset class. And then the second filter is who's going to do that at the lowest cost. Cost matters in investments. The the more cost you pay to a mutual fund manager or fund manager, that is going to erode at your long-term returns. And, And the whole name of the game is not how much money you make, but how much money you keep. This is going to help you keep more of the money. So those would be the two factors that I would look for. Right, that that now narrows that that search that you're starting to do. It's not what was the best investment, but which investment best tracked the U.S. large cap index. Now you're going to get a smaller range of, of investments, and and then you're going to look for the the one that does that the cheapest. I know you hate it. You're gonna you're gonna uh. argue with me, but uh, <laughs> you know you can call my publicist yeah. and see if uh. they agree or not. <laughs> Look, man, it's do. Do you agree or disagree? Is that is that inaccurate? Did I give the uh, listener some some of the meat, some of the potatoes? I'll say it this way: for the listener that
2: doesn't want to do a lot of work, if they're just going to do the minimum to get invested, fine. Right? If if you if you find, look, we both know which. Which what they're going to tell us? U.S. large cap fund. They're going to say, okay, you buy an S and P five hundred index fund. And I get what you're saying. Some charge fifteen basis points. Some charge ten. Some, char- both some charge some charge Five hundred stocks. Some some are free, right? So yeah, right. So you go with the one that's free. I I, I get that, but but. It's, it's a little lazy is is what I'm saying, right? Like it's a little, you're getting in an index, you're getting the good, the bad, and the ugly of that asset class. You're not getting as many people think the S&P 500 are the 500 best companies Nobody in the United States. Who said that?
0: That's what people okay. think. No, that, that's, that's what okay. people think. So if that's what <laughs> okay. they think, um, that is what they, s- so, uh, so Go ahead. I'll let you finish. I'm
2: saying if if you've got a if you got hundred thousand dollars to invest and you've already established that forty thousand of those dollars should be in U.S. large cap stocks, you you could you could certainly do fine by buying the S and P 500 for that entire forty thousand. However, I think taking the deeper dive is worth your time to finding those mutual funds. Or actively managed ETFs that are going to have nothing but U.S. large cap companies in there, and y- y- you you could do better. I wish I wish you I had a hat on so I could turn you- it
0: backwards and we can go blow to blow on this right now because are, are you trying to tell me that <laughs> you're encouraging people to like try to find the active? Like what's the difference between trying to pick the best active manager on an ETF or mutual fund and the best stock? Like what, what is the difference in your mind? Cause you're doing the same thing. You're speculating on, on the outperformance of some particular investment. So how, how do you find like, are you saying, were you hoping my answer was going to be, you should call your local financial advisor? Cause that's shenanigans. No, no, I knew it wouldn't be. <laughs> I knew it wouldn't be. No, I, I'm, yeah,
2: no, I'm telling people that the index is riddled with dogs. Okay. And you have to know that going in there. Now, the pessimist of, uh, the media pessimist is going to say, yeah, well, 66% of active fund managers don't beat the index. Great. Why are you doing research? Not to be popular. You're doing it to find the 34% that do. Okay. Do the work. Do the homework do that research. Now this we could argue further of, of how do you determine, you know, did somebody beat the index last year? Didn't, didn't, that doesn't hold mean on they're a going second. to this year.
0: Rewind the tape, go back 30 minutes. Didn't we just have, start this whole podcast by saying that trying to find the best and that, the, you know, it's, it's so, it's so arbitrary. It's so hard. Like, the popular, yeah, yeah, the yeah, best. No doubt. So it, 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 do you have a secret formula that, that identifies these 34%? And by the way, and you know, this as well as I have, because I know you've read the research that the, the best mutual fund managers today, right? The best active managers in any class, pick one of your seven classes, U S large caps, cause it's listed first there. So the top five U S large cap managers for 2022 will not be the top five U S large cap managers in 2023 that's almost exactly. guaranteed exactly and th- yeah
2: that my point exactly your metric has to not be yesterday's winners that's number one okay a- again what what i think we tried to do on this podcast andrew is is to get people to think a little bit deeper uh, and a little bit more holistically and and not kind of follow the crowd and Yes, if you're Googling, what was the best mutual fund last year that out beat the index? You're going to find the one that had the calendar year 2022 return that was the highest dollar amount, period. That's not what you're looking for, right? I, I think, and this is very simple, but it's I think it's better than just looking at the passive. I think if you go and look at a mutual fund, let's say, for example, that beat the index on a one, three, five, and 10-year basis and still employs the same fund manager for those last 11 years. That is a pretty safe bet that they will continue to do so, okay? A 1, 3, they don't have to beat the index every year, but on a, on a last year, like we said, you got to look beyond that. A 3-year average, 5-year average, 10-year average that they beat the index... And they're out there. Look, of the 34%, guess what, right? That metric, the 34% is probably like last mm-hmm. year, right? Of the 34%, you're going to find 5% or less. That beat the index on a one, 5% or less, right? It's a tough, it's a tough find, but it, you know, it's your money. It's your life savings. It's, isn't it worth it, right? It, how, how much time do we spend, you know, doing our hair in the morning right like this is your money well, some folks. of us
0: more than others but take,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> take the extra 20 minutes right all right folks i think today's episode you know andrew it's funny that you found number two episode was uh kind of congruent with this so it i i think this should have been one of our first five i think it's that important it's that basic Following the crowd mentality that has put so many of our friends in dire straits as they wonder why the stock that all their friends bought wasn't totally awesome, right? So, conversely, I hope this gives you some freedom of thought when you're having those discussions with colleagues and they tout that they have the greatest things in sliced bread. Now you can say, hey, good for you, in a non sarcastic way, knowing that what works for you doesn't work for everyone, and vice versa. All right, folks, that's a wrap on another episode of Dollars and Sensibilities. As we approach our 100th episode, we've got some real fun stuff in store for you. So like, comment, tell a friend, tune in every Friday for more ideas on how to be sensible about your dollars. I'm Bill. And Andrew. See you on the flip side of the coin. Cheers.
1: Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.